Bigfoot hunt can be a fun and rewarding experience, as long as you plan accordingly and follow these simple steps. Gather your group, pick a spot to hunt, and research the area. You want to be aware of accessible areas, private property limits, and what wildlife can be found in the area. Establish the rules with your group that cover safety, partnering plans, communication, and respect for the natural environment. On the hunt, look for some common signs of Bigfoot activity, such as stacked rock formations, twisted tree branches, stick formations, and shelters. Of course, always keep an eye out for footprints, hair samples, and remains of prey animal on which a Bigfoot may have fed. Conduct tree knocking experiments. This is how Bigfoot communicate. Howls are also a simple experiment for which you can possibly get responses. Just remember to consider your location and proximity near civilized and settled areas. Keep the camera handy or consider trail cameras for long excursions. Foremost, remember that you are searching for Bigfoot on their home turf and you need to stay safe. Bring a reliable flashlight or headlamp, good hiking boots, long pants, water, and a good walking stick to navigate the rough terrain. And lastly, be patient and hang in there. Bigfoot know how to stay hidden from you and you will not be successful on every trip. Just enjoy the outdoors and keep trying. At least, that's what I hear. Sometimes the public doesn't believe what they are told to believe, and our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influence the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, episode two, the big crypto on campus, Bigfoot. Now where did the term Bigfoot begin? What drives the interest in finding Bigfoot? What does a prehistoric fish have to do with the possible existence of Sasquatch? After the break, we follow the trail and read the signs as we discover our fascination with Bigfoot. Howdy, theoryologists. Welcome to the discussion. All right, let's get right to our summary, because this is a fun topic, and there really is a lot to cover. Of course, this overview is going to barely scratch the surface of Bigfoot theory and mythology. 
The focus today is very specifically the introduction as Bigfoot. So I will keep our understanding of Bigfoot to its simplest premise. Now Bigfoot is a cryptozoological creature. Cryptozoology is the study of legendary animals in order to determine their existence. Now, Bigfoot has appeared in some form within North American folklore for centuries, most notably in the Pacific Northwest. He's often been equated to native North American tradition of wild people that often existed in their folklore as a sort of boogeyman, an oversized hair-covered hominid that can reach heights of eight feet. It is said to live in thick wooded regions that have flora and fauna capable of sustaining such a large creature. Known as Sasquatch and Bigfoot, the name derives from native terminology and of course for the signature large footprints that have been found throughout the proposed environments. People claim to have seen Bigfoot, describing it as a large, hairy, muscular, bipedal ape-like creature, roughly six to nine feet in height, covered in hair that is described as black, dark brown, or darkish red. Now, of course, that's Bigfoot in a nutshell. But really, how did the term Bigfoot come into the popular psyche? Well, Bigfoot as we know him today really comes from two incidences. One is known as the Jerry Crew incident that took place in 1958. The other was 1967 with the Patterson-Gimlin film. Let's first look at the uh, Gerald Crew incident. In 1958, Jerry Crew discovered footprints near a construction site on which he was working in California. August 27th of 1958, Jerry Crew, a road construction worker, saw such prints circling his parked bulldozer. Crew had heard of findings like this by a road gang about a year before at other locations, um, and so he was rather curious. He showed the prints to some of his co-workers, and they said they'd also seen prints like that in the area. So whatever was making the prints was really being referred to uh, by the men as Bigfoot. About a month later, Crew saw additional prints, and more than in the beginning of October. That time, he actually made a plaster cast of one of the prints. Uh, with the cast in hand, he contacted the local paper uh, in Eureka, California, the Humboldt Times, and he related the story of his findings. After that, an associate, uh, the Associated Press released the story and actually used the term Bigfoot, really to international fanfare. This really is what resulted uh, in this becoming the recognized name for the creature. Now, in 1967, flash forward about a decade, and Bigfoot and Bigfoot hunting had become quite an activity for uh, a, a, a small but very committed group of the population. We're going to talk about the Patterson-Gimlin film. This was really the first widespread footage of a Bigfoot sighting. 
And this is what established the popular image of Bigfoot in the public imagination. Now, in the fall of 1967, after Patterson had approached Gimlin about the topic and discussed an, an inexplicable event he'd heard about uh, up in the Six Rivers National Forest in Northern California, the two men traveled to the area and took horses in order to navigate the rough terrain. In late October, near Bluff Creek, which was the same area um, in which Jerry Crew had had his experience, the horses saw the creature first, getting spooked. Patterson dismounted, pursuing, and filming the creature with a 16mm camera. When he paused to steady the camera and get a clear shot, the creature, mid-stride, turned to look over its right shoulder before disappearing into the forest. The creature was later nicknamed uh, Patty, as the popularity of this video grew. Now, of course, there are criticisms for both of these uh, incidents. The crew find, of course, has been accused of being a hoax. And there's much that's been brought to light, accusations that the prints were planted by the construction company owner, in collusion even with the newspaper editor at the Humboldt Times, in order to stir up some activity. Now, the hoax claim has been rebutted by those that uh, have compared the original casts showcased by Crew and claiming that they do not look like the wooden false feet that were later revealed as props for a hoax. Patterson-Gimlin film has also been accused as, as a hoax, basically as a man in a suit. Some have come forward claiming to have sold Patterson the suit, and others uh, have come forward as the man in the suit. Patterson passed away in the 1970s, never wavering from his complaint, uh, his claim of authenticity. Gimlin, likewise, has never admitted participation in a hoax, though he has been known in the past to give room to the idea that Patterson was capable of, of something like a hoax. There are plenty that have studied the film for both the authenticity of the video and the physical attributes of the animal featured and have claimed its, uh, its validity. These are, this is roughly the, the, the core origin and background for both the image we know of as Bigfoot and the moniker of Bigfoot. Now let's go ahead and move into uh, our discussion of the, the theoriology of this. You know, the, it's the real effects that, um, that these events had that, that captured people's imaginations. Now, to understand the public's willingness to entertain these events to levels well beyond curiosity, to the point of plausibility or outright belief, uh, I think we uh, can look at three examples. A TV western, a fish, and the zoo. Now, how do those come into play, and how do those relate? Well, let's talk about Mr. Bigfoot. Mr. Bigfoot is an example of how this idea was already in the public imagination, even if only, an only anecdotally. Um, in the 1950s, there was a TV western known as Death Valley Days. 
Now, I came across the discussion of this, and it was I was rather curious. I'd never heard about this before. There was an episode titled Mr. Bigfoot that aired in 1956, a full two years before Crewe found his footprints. Now, in the episode, there's a professor character that starts talking about Mr. Bigfoot and discusses a set of footprints measuring 18 inches long and found in the Death Valley region back in the 1860s. Of course, this was simply a fictional account used as a plot vehicle, but this raises the question of the scriptwriter's familiarity with such incidences of large hominid evidence. Now, this is possibly the explanation for the moniker given by Crew's workers, as well as the ability for the name to resonate with the public. I mean, they'd already seen it before. So there's Mr. Bigfoot. What's next? How about a fish? Well, the coelacanth exists. <laughs> the coelacanth is an ancient fish. Uh, it's the kind of creature science refers to as a living fossil. And it's also an example of something called the Lazarus taxon. This is when a plant or animal seemed to have vanished from the earth, only to turn up again alive and well. So the coelacanth swam at the time of the dinosaurs and was uh, thought to have gone extinct along with them about 65 million years ago. That is, until fishermen along the coast of South Africa had been catching the occasional coelacanth for years. Uh, it was known to them as the gombesa, and it had no value as food, and it was seen as a bycatch rather than something that, that you'd actually intentionally fish for. But in 1938, a museum official happened upon one of these recently caught specimen that was brought into a, a fishing trawler, and the fossil fish, it came back to life. Um, the original discovery wasn't without its controversy either. Uh, because the specimen was not properly preserved, many people just dismissed the findings completely outright, claiming a case of mistaken identity. Now, that sounds pretty familiar. It took until 1952 for the next specimen to surface, before science fully embraced the idea that this fish was still around. Um, another species of coelacanth was even later discovered recently in 1998 in the waters of Indonesia. So, for this event to have occurred, been on people's minds, even if uh, known as a humorous uh, misidentification, Confirmation came in the early 50s, of course, just a few years before, before this, uh, this event in 1958. Now, finally, let's get to zoos. Zoos were changing. You know, the 1960s saw a real transition from the menagerie showcase of animal collections being, um, being aired in, in cages with animals uh, just, just out for, for view, without a, a, any sort of real discussion or uh, understanding. Uh, they were just that. They were collections. They were showpieces. This transition moved towards full exhibits, which replicated wildlife habitat, habitat and natural environments. This had the effect of the animals becoming more real. You know, they existed in actual places, and associated with each other, 
rather than just as autonomous oddities. Now, science of the 50s and 60s, along with this, was changing and changing people's thoughts. You know, some key uh, items that I that I thought were were prevalent or applicable in this situation would have been the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA, which came about in the 1950s. Uh, additionally, that era saw the introduction of coast-to-coast television broadcast and the unveiling of satellites to the public. Um, you know, this these things, along with a myriad of other advances that were occurring in this time frame, amounted to the world getting smaller. You know, the natural world itself was getting less mysterious. And the ability to share information was becoming easier. Now, as a, a final component on this that I'd like for us to think about, uh, in terms of the, the just the overall, psych, overall psychology of this, uh, goes into the idea of the willingness to to find, if not full belief, plausibility in the scenario. And so I started looking into the psychology of cryptozoology and came across the neuroscience of skepticism. Now, there was a group of neuroscientists recently that uh, had gathered uh, basically a sample of skeptics and a group of believers. Uh, in the areas of the supernatural and astrology. Uh, the participants were shown certain images and asked questions that provoked thoughts of belief and disbelief, all while undergoing an MRI, which measured blood flow to the brain. Now, the results were interesting, and they showed a very significant difference between the skeptics and the believers in terms of which areas of the brain were accessed and how strongly they were accessed. What does this mean? Well, there is an argument to be made that some people are more naturally inclined to belief or skepticism. Additionally, there are others that have postulated that skepticism is tied to a reduced ability to trust. For those that find trust in others easy, the claim by witnesses such as Crew, Patterson, and Gimlin are more easily accepted. Just look at how credibility is still addressed in media and the courts. In fact, one of the earliest articles about Jerry Crew went to great lengths to discuss his credibility in his community. This was considered essential for the reader to give any merit to the article. Now, I've thrown out a bunch of uh, quick facts in, in succession and really tried to boil down uh, a lot of this information that I've come across uh, as, as rough summary. But I will include all of these links uh, to some of these articles um, and sites on the show notes. So check that out for, for further reading and discussion. Now, let's move into the endurance test and go through our questions. One, how long uh, has it already been around? Well, Bigfoot's been around for centuries in some form or fashion. Of course, the term Bigfoot now has already lasted for 60 years. 
and has become the common terminology within the public vocabulary, especially the American vocabulary. Has it had a large influence in popular culture and media? Of course. I mean, it's too numerous to detail. Television, film, documentary, research groups, radio, etc. But does this mean it's still relevant today? Yes, absolutely, of course. Bigfoot is still the standard bearer for cryptid research. Can it continue into to capture public imagination going forward? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, until uh, there is conclusive evidence one way or the other, it is going to capture the public imagination. Now, in summary, you know, Bigfoot is a household name. And for many, practically a member of the family. At least of the family history. Most of us couldn't imagine a world where Bigfoot doesn't exist in the lexicon. How many of our fondest memories, favorite movies, campfire tales, and family folklore would simply disappear? You know, Bigfoot is a cherished part of our lives. Of course, sentimentality is nice. But Bigfoot has become so much more than a mythical character, or even a useful topic for hoax marketing. He has become a mascot for optimism in the cryptozoological community, more than that dumpy coelacanth ever could. He's a rallying call for environmental conservancy, protection of rare and endangered species, and for the constant pursuit of discovery and research. He brings people together to share a common interest, inspiring curiosity, and for those to even open up with unexplainable experiences that make more sense when the big fella admits, yeah, it was him. He emboldens people to discover the outdoors, study animal behaviors, natural habitats, and expand their own appreciation for the rigors of wildlife research. Bigfoot gives us hope that there is still more to explore and discover in our own backyards, and that maybe the world is still big enough and unknown enough that there are natural mysteries left to be uncovered. So whether you believe that the evidence is already there to be found, or even that it will never be found because there isn't anything there to be found, Bigfoot exists. In some form or another, he exists enough to make his mark in almost every culture. And if, eventually, someone proves conclusively that there are no Bigfoot in existence today, it may mean, rather sadly, that both the Sasquatch and our imaginations have gone extinct. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. You know, if you like what you hear, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. Connect with me with faith at facebook.com slash theoryologypodcast uh, or comment on the show website at conspiracytheoryology.com. Absolutely. Uh, this show is built on, is going to be built on this community of discussion. You know, I know that uh, I like listening to these shows, and I like topics uh, that that pique my interest, and I want to hear your ideas. So get out there, 
let me know what you want to hear. If there's something that you think that uh, could have been included in this discussion, absolutely, I'd love to bring that up in a future episode. Or if you have a, an idea for a full topic on a future show, let me know and uh, we'll get going on that. Now, I want to always remind everybody that the music in this episode is by Adam Henry Garcia. And if you'd like to hear more of Adam's music, please visit his site at adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. Thank you again, and until next time, happy hunting. <laughs>